The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. A lot of the anxiety we have around our finances is from ourselves, you know, I'm a horrible person because I didn't cook tonight and I went and got takeout. I'm an awful person because I can't afford to allow my kids to go on holiday this year. No, you're not, you know, no, you're not. You've got to let go of that constant blaming of yourself, because if we stay in a position of regret, if we stay in a position of I suck, you'll, you'll never be able to propel yourself to do better. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. We look at stories from business leaders who've dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope work will change in the future. Money, how to make it, spend it, and save it, is something that gives a lot of people anxiety. Money is often the first place we act out our anxiety. Because how emotional is money? Since birth, we've all gotten a lot of messages about it, which means money is loaded with guilt, shame, pride, symbolism, and shoulds. As we're climbing in our careers, we're often comparing ourselves with others, their bonuses, their cars, their vacations, whatever. Buffy Purcell is an entrepreneur and a personal finance expert, and she says a lot of the ways our relationships with money develop, for good and bad, are because of our emotions, our past experiences, and even our trauma. Today, Buffy will help us stop the shame and anxiety about our finances and treat ourselves with kindness so we can begin again with a plan and a solid strategy. Buffy joined me to speak about financial anxiety and what we can all try to do about it. Here's our conversation. Okay, so Buffy, you say that financial literacy is less about budgeting and like, don't buy that latte, (laughs) and more about financial mental health. What is financial mental health? Well, our brain controls everything in our body, as we know. And if the brain is anxious or stressed out or sad or depressed, we do things to compensate for that. And we've got to concentrate on our mental health so that we can have a better relationship with money. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of people think the first thing you should do is, you know, put forth a budget together and 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 stick to that. But if you don't work on the why you make these irrational decisions with your finances every day. You're setting yourself up for failure. What does constant financial stress do to us and our brains? It, it turns off certain parts of the brain. You become dormant. You become irrational. You constantly chase the high of serotonin with you know, impulse purchases and <laughs> vacations when you cannot afford it financially. And I think a lot of people, and I say this in the book, believe fully or have been 
trained to believe that life is simply about survival. And it's not. And we've got to really work on blocking out those outside noises that get into our head. The devil, as I call it in my book, <laughs> we've got to block them out. We've got to tell them to get behind these Satan and, and, and do what's best for ourselves. I mean, it's interesting that you say that when people are under financial stress, they act in ways that actually may worsen their financial picture. Can you talk us through an example of that? Well, they definitely do. I talk about a client of mine. They're very financially responsible. And, you know, we had filed their taxes in my tax practice. And during the summer, they received a letter from the IRS saying they owed $50,000 and they panicked. And they didn't call me. They didn't email me. They just simply took a loan against their, or not took a loan because that would have been better, but they, they cashed in their 401k. <gasps> Worse. Yeah. To, to pay off this debt. And it was that reactionary impulse, that anxiety of, I, I, I just don't even want to deal with this. I got this letter. I'm not going to even, even try to work on potentially what could be, if it's wrong or anything. It's just the, I want this scary thing to go away. So I'm going to, you know, be very reactionary. I'm not going to put forth a plan and I'm just going to make it go away. Well, when they came to my office the next tax season and I obviously saw that they had cash in their 401k and, you know, me being me, I'm like, why would you have done this? And they gave me the letter and I said, well, this isn't even a bill, darlings. This, this, this is an assess. This is, you know, just the first step where they're saying, we think you didn't do this. And, you know, I sent in some paperwork to the IRS and they didn't in fact owe the money. And it took a year to get the IRS to refund them the money. And then the next tax season, they then had a tax problem because they had taken out $50,000 from their 401k and had to pay taxes on it. And so, you know, our mental health causes us or our financial anxiety causes us to try to make it go away quickly. And we don't we don't put forth a plan. We don't take a beat and 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 meditate and and try to game out solutions to our problem. I always say people say, oh, I'm getting evicted from my house. I'm just I mean, they make silly decisions. And I'm like, well, you still have 30 days. You know, you have Mm -hmm. time to sleep on it. You have time to consult with others. You have time not to make these very dangerous impulse decisions to just make want to make things go away. Oh, my God. I could so relate to that. I mean, I think anyone can relate to getting a letter from the tax authority and filing it away and never wanting to even open the darn letter. But, you know, I I have total financial anxiety. And and a a few years ago, I leased a car that I realized was just too, too much car for my budget. Like I had, and you, you write about this too. I got a fancy car because I turned 40 and I was like, oh my God, Maura, this is too much. And so what did I do? I went back to the dealer and I said, I want a used car instead because I was anxious. Mm-hmm. And I ended up getting a bum deal because I bought a used car on a loan and I got a penalty from my lease. And so what happened to me? My anxiety driven by an impulse that I was spending too much money caused me to get an even worse financial deal. And I didn't even talk to my husband about it. I literally went to the dealer one day while he was at work. He was like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're being human. That's, that's what you're doing. You, 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 you know, you fail for the, I'm 40. I've, 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 I've worked hard. Right. And I, I deserve, deserve it. Damn it. <laughs> I deserve. We definitely, I definitely talk about deserve being a very dangerous word in the book. <laughs> I deserve it. And I, you know, even though I know I shouldn't do it, I'm going to do it because I see all these other people doing blah, blah, blah. And I should have as well. And I know I have more than them. But then later you thought better of it. And again, 
because you were suffering from financial anxiety, you wanted to make that go away quickly. So I'm just going to go take this car back and get whatever else, get a used car and, and that'll make it better instead of gaming it out talking to your partner, figuring out a way to get out of it. No, I told you, it sounds sounds like most of my clients. Sounds I like know. me <laughs> back in the day. I'll never forget when he drove up and he was like, why is there a new car in the driveway? <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> I mean, and, and, and you talk about, you call society, you call society they. Mm-hmm. You say that society they doesn't want us to understand the importance of financial mental health. And society they perpetuates the idea that we have to look successful or fake it till we make it, which is what I was sort of doing with my fancy car. How do we get out from that? That is like in the water from when we are born. Before we're born, actually, you know, mm, yeah. the, it's really difficult. I'll be honest. I think a lot of people want to say that you can just do this and immediately it's 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 fixed and it's not. And problem for you balls, definitely about things take time and that's mm. okay. We will falter on this journey to, you know, push against society's norms of you have to look a certain way. You, you've got to be constantly smiling and constantly on holiday, like people you see on commercials. If you don't live in a 10,000 square foot home, you're failing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very hard to block that out because it's all we see from birth, but it is possible to do. Mm-hmm. I, I believe that when you can tell society to kiss your behind mm-hmm. and block out those noises, you know, I, I talked about this morning, I, I did a post and I, I said that comparison is the thief of joy. Mm. And, you know, when you're constantly trying to emulate somebody else's happiness, you'll never be happy. Like a lot of people in, in, in my digital course, I asked my students, what is it that you want? Not what society says you should have. What is it that you want? And the answers that I get surprise me. We do these Zooms and, and I just, I see the light turn on back on in their, their eyes where they're like, you know what, Buffy? If I just had an acre of land and put up a double wide trailer and had a new car every year and could go on vacation twice a year with my kids and they go to a good school, I'd be fine. And I'm like, well, then why are you paying $6,000 a month to live in this big mansion? <laughs> right. Why, why, why are you doing that? Well, because people will judge me if I live in a trailer. Who cares? Who cares? What, 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 what matters is what you want. And, and I think we've, we've got to get back to that. We've been brainwashed into thinking that what society says is best for us, and it is not. How, how would you counter advice like uh, dress for the job you want and drive the car that your boss drives and all the sort of like workplace and leadership advice we get about looking super successful, whatever that means, so that people take us more seriously? For me personally, I take people who are authentically themselves more seriously than the people who try to be like other people. And in the workplace, oh my goodness, and you know, in any workplace, but even in the reality TV workplace space, um, I rallied against that. I said, I'm not going to wear $1,500 shoes while I'm on this television show. I'm not going to wear all these name brand labels. My outfits will cost no more than $250 head to toe for the entire season, 15 episodes of the show. And I don't care that 
you promote this aspirational lifestyle of luxury. I live a luxurious life. I, I live in a $3 million mansion, but I don't wear my assets on my ass. And so I'm not going to perpetuate that lie. You know, do the work. The work is what matters, not what you look like. The work yeah. is what shines. The work is what's important. All that fluff about, you know, I, I really, that fake it till you make it is so dangerous. It's so toxic. Mm. When you're spending your life constantly trying to be somebody that you're not, you'll never be yourself. And you, you, and I never, I don't like to say never, but you, you, yeah. you, 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 you will likely never get it, what it is that you want in life. If you're always going around with this avatar <laughs> and not your real self. Oh my and gosh, it is an avatar. You're right. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to control or to manage your mental health when you basically have a split personality, like at work, I'm this boss B and I wear all this labeled stuff and I'm so in control and never make mistakes. And at home, I'm human and flawed and cry and I'm anxious and depressed and, and real. And, 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 and so your brain is confused. Who are you? <laughs> who are you? What are you doing? I don't know who, who you are so that I can function on that. And so we, we've got to stop running around with this avatar and then who we really are. It's kind of like in, um, my husband's a psychiatrist and I mess up sometimes thinking cause I'm an MRS and D that I know things, but <laughs> it's, it's, it's like having a split personality disorder. Quite honestly, it is. Well, and it's the running of how am I going to pay the bills that never shuts off in your brain. Like oh, that, yeah. that comes, that comes to work with you and that comes home with you and it stays with you all night. So like, that's the piece. Before we talk about the work, because I do want to talk about that, I want to talk a little bit about something that you dive into your book. And it's different than the constant financial stress we may live with in our adult lives. But you talk about inherited financial trauma. What's the difference between inherited financial trauma and constant financial stress that many of us live with day to day? Oh, that's such a good question. So I'll tackle the inherited financial trauma first. I'm a black woman. I, you know, was fortunate to grow up in a family who have an excellent relationship with money, largely to do with my grandmother, who's just a rock star. And I every day try to be more and more like her. <laughs> the inherent financial trauma of, I'll give this example. Once on social media, I posted, you know, why are we running around wearing chains on our neck and these clothes and driving these cars that are depreciating and, you know, you're wasting your money. And someone said, well, some people who look like you, Buffy, want to wear things on their person or drive things because in the past, if you invested in land or homes, those things were taken from us. Mm. If you put money in the bank, it could be taken from us. And so we carry that generational trauma, financial trauma of financial uncertainty. Like even if you do what you're supposed to do, things like eminent domain have been used mm -hmm. against us. It's just your money, just not in the bank one day have, have been used against black people and, and many other people. And so people want to buy things that they can keep on their person because you can't take it from me. Mm. And that hit me like a ton of bricks because I, I was coming from a very specialized place of privilege as a black woman with generational wealth mm -hmm. and, and, and pointing my finger and wagging it at, at folks who were just acting out of all they know. Mm -hmm. And so it's about reframing 
their trust in financial systems, our trust, and and using the system for our benefit. Also with the inherent financial generalized poverty and trauma, if you grow up seeing your parents struggle financially, if they don't have a good relationship with money and never talk to you about it, if that's all you see as an adult and I mean, as a child, and then you graduating or go off to college or begin working and no one's ever taught you anything about money because the schools certainly don't do it. We kind of set everyone up for failure. And so you're just floundering around this world trying to, to be, and, and, and when you struggle, you think that's normal because you grew up seeing that. You said the different constant financial trauma, meaning wanting to, uh, needing to sort of the difference between the constant financial stress that a lot of us feel as grownups just trying to keep it go keep it all going versus an inherited financial trauma which you you liken to PTSD you call it money sickness uh, it definitely is I would assume that people who grow up with financial instability and who inherit financial trauma do you think they have more stress with money as grown-ups or is is there no correlation in your experience? Well, there's definitely correlation. They definitely have yeah. more experience, uh, more more trauma. I, I give the example of a student in my digital course who, who actually coined the phrase money sickness. She said that she grew up and her mother would literally take to the bed the first and the 15th of every month and that she would have to take care of herself and her younger sister and her mom. And now mm-hmm. as an adult, she has no financial problem. She can pay her bills. She's financially solvent. But she takes to the bed the first and the 15th of every month and she doesn't know why. And it's, you know, I believe that financial PTSD of seeing her mother suffer from money sickness in terms of the workplace and us just trying to survive and and do what we can so that we can pay our bills and that being top of mind and constantly a stressor. I say that 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 can be resolved. It, I really believe at any financial level, you can change that. Then it's it's not easy, but there's some very dramatic things you can do. Like if if housing costs, which they are for everyone, are the bane of your existence and causing you to be stressed all the time and causing you to work in a job that you hate because it affords you the money to, you know, keep your head above water and live this this avatar life, then I say maybe move in with family. And people, people laugh at me and they say, are you crazy? And I'm like, well, we used to do that. We used to co-live. We used to have a community of family. We used to have one, one house and, and everyone lived together. And people say, well, that's crazy. Then it's going to cause me more anxiety and stress living with my family. <laughs> but I say that family isn't necessarily the people that are blood related to you. Mm. If you have friends who are like-minded and, and every month the both of you are lending money back and forth betwixt the two of you to try to make ends meet, why not rent a house together? Why not buy a house together and try to save? And then you can lower your financial costs so that then maybe you can leave that toxic work environment and find something that's fulfilling and, 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 and provides you with happiness and financial stability. And probably have help making dinner and childcare. Correct. That's the other thing. I I say, you know, I tell people all the time, you know, if you can with your family or your friends, if somebody doesn't have a job, give them a job. The job is you cook dinner, you keep the house clean, you take the kids to school and soccer practice. That's your job that you're, you're the property manager. You don't have to pay to live here. The way you pay is through that service. Then think how much money you save in childcare costs. Think of how much money you save in time and stress 
of running around ragged and working. Mm-hmm. And I think it really truly is the answer. And honestly, a lot of people are going to have to come to that reality with these insane increases in rent costs and mm-hmm. the inability of some people to buy a home at all. We're going to have to get back to that. We really are. And I think it's healthy to have people around you to challenge you and to to get on your nerves. Like I, I, I talk about how, you know, I bought this big house for a reason so that when all my nephews and my cousins graduate from high school and they want to come to Atlanta and they want to go to college or they want to figure out what they want to do with their life, they're welcome to come live with us. And the only thing we say is you, if you're not in school, you've got to have a job. And when you have that job, I want you saving 80% of what you make because you don't have any expenses. I pay for everything. Right. And I want to set you up for success. And we've done that with four of my nephews who live with us. I didn't want smelly little boys in my house, but I did it because that's generational wealth. That's helping your family and not enabling them. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. You talk about a question that I think a lot of us feel, especially those of us who are anxious achievers, who are trying to get ahead, which is, why do I keep failing while everyone around me seems to have it figured out? Why does my colleague have a new car when I can barely make the payments? I mean, it is very, and we've talked about this before, but I just want to really hammer in on anxiety's role in this question. What have other people figured out that I can't seem to? Other people have figured out that their avatar works for them, but it doesn't. <laughs> That's what they figured out. And I, I know because I was a tax accountant for 20 years. I was a mortgage broker originating loans for people to buy homes. I was a life, health, property, casualty um, insurance agent. I know what people have and I know what they're spending their money on. And they're spending their money on that avatar, on this fake persona that they have together. We are humans. We're flawed. Nobody has it together. I don't have it together. We are all a work in progress. And when we realize that life will be better, like when we realize that the person that you are trying to compete with at work who seems to have it all together probably doesn't. And if you had a talk with that person and they were really honest, everyone would feel better. Anxiety can be amazing. Like it can, it can, it can propel you to do wonderful things and achieve, you know, your wildest dreams, but it can also, like I said before, be the thief of joy. It can also uh, have you constantly comparing yourself to others. 
And you just got to strike a balance between the two. But I'm here to tell you, I've done the research. Nobody has it going on, honey. Nobody. <laughs> We're all work in progress. We're all a hot mess. One thing I love about social media is you see that these celebrities and people that we look up to all suffer the same drama that we do financially and in real life. It's just they have more money. So what? We're all a mess. And that's beautiful. We're humans. That's what life is about, is about growing and evolving and figuring things out. And, and, you know, that's another thing I like about my class. I, I, the students, when, when we're in these Zooms with like 300 people and I make students say what happened was, which is my way of, of getting them to say, my name is Buffy and I have a problem with my finances because dot, dot, dot. And when people hear judges and garbage, you know, garbage men and a teacher and a physician say the same thing, everyone takes a deep sigh of relief. Yeah. Because we are all the same. We're all doing, some people just have more zeros behind their drama. <laughs> we, we are all in the same boat, just trying to make it. And I don't want us to just try to make it. I want us to figure out a way to fulfill our financial anxiety and obligations, but also live this beautiful life that we've been blessed to have. Well, and also, I, w- I want to get into your I want to get into your financial forgiveness mantra in a sec. But I, I do want to say that we all live under consumer capitalism, of which social media is just an amplifier. Yeah. You know, I was having a, I'm I'm in my mid forties, and so for me, you know, I'm targeted constantly with retirement ads. Are you saving enough for retirement? Will you be that couple on the deck chairs looking out over the lake? You know, <laughs> when you're healthy but still fit at seventy. And um, a friend of mine who's in finance said. Retirement is a multi-billion-dollar industry. Don't mm-hmm. ever forget that. Now, of course, I want to be safe when when I re- and have enough money to retire. But you know, retirement propaganda is also part of consumer capitalism. Like we're we're being bombarded with these messages. How can we but help but be anxious? I mean, that's their goal. The marketers with that is to make you anxious about retirement so that they can take hold of your money and invest it and make more than they're giving you on the investment. It's all a game. And that's not to say that we shouldn't be concerned about retirement, but I think we don't need billions or uh, trillions of dollars to be retired. I think we need to sit down and figure out what our FU number is. The number. (laughs) What's that? Yep. The the, the FU number is how much money do I really have to have where I can say goodbye and get off the grid and not have to work? And I think a lot of people are surprised to find it's not as much money as you think it is. Like if you don't look at the retirement propaganda ads, if you don't listen to these retirement planners who are trying to tell you that you need a million or two million dollars to retire. If you if you really think about what it is that you really want and if all you want is to have your house paid off and not have a whole bunch of debt and be able to go on holiday a couple of years, a couple of times a year, it probably isn't that big a number. If you invest your money wisely, mm. if you save, if you do the work. I mean, I, I tell my, my nephews, you know, if you open up an IRA at 19 years old and you contribute $6,000 a year to that for seven years, then you don't have to touch it ever again. By the time you're my age, 44 years old, you'll have half a million dollars. Wow. I mean, and, and that's not having to keep contributing to that. It's contribute to it for seven years. Just seven years and then forget about it and let compound interest do its thing. You'll have good money. And I think if we all would just realize that when we retire, we don't need that seven bedroom house. Yeah. When we retire, we don't need two cars. 
when we retire, we, we don't need to wear the latest this and buy the latest that. You don't. You don't need mm-hmm. it anyway, but we definitely don't need it when we retire. You pare down your expenses and you can live off your investment income rather easily. And, you know, I'm not to say that it's easy, but you know what I mean? I think if you really think about it and you strip away all of these desires that we have now, these wants that, that we think that we will continue to need when we retire, that it becomes more attainable. If we, yeah. if we look for, to retirement at, to what do we need, not what we want, mm-hmm. you'll figure it out. And it might come f- sooner than you think. You might be able to, and this is a dangerous word, afford to do it sooner than you think. So to that point, Buffy, what is financial mindfulness? Financial mindfulness is like in the example I gave before about my um, clients who just were reactionary and took the um, the IRS letter and tried to make it go away is the Mm -hmm. practice of, you know, acknowledging that there is a financial anxious moment right now. There's a stressor and that's okay. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to react right now. And I'm going to forgive myself for whatever the blunder was because I'm human and it's fine. Just realizing what's going on around you and, and, and sitting in this moment of this is what I have to deal with and that's okay. And, and I'm going to figure it out. And that sounds, sounds really simple and it's not, (laughs) it's incredibly difficult, but when you get in the practice of doing it, you know, just blocking out everything else and just being in the moment of this is where I am. This is what's going on around me. This is what I need to work to to deal with and I don't have to do it this second. I can take a beat and calm myself down and and meditate so that I can lower my blood pressure. I can calm down my anxiety, but I can also I can I have this trick where I'll tell my anxiety, I'll worry about that tomorrow. And it works because it satisfies my anxiety's need to worry. Because I'm saying I'm just delaying it until tomorrow. And then when tomorrow comes and I've been able to get a little bit of rest, if I haven't figured out what I need to do, I'll tell anxiety, girl, I'm going to worry about this tomorrow. And then when the next day comes, I've had two days of rest now and I could figure out a plan and I could solve it. And then I've satisfied her need of having me worry about it a little bit. Why is your anxiety a she? (laughs) She's a she. She's a she. She's a she because she's me. (laughs) And I love her because she has propelled me to do things that I never thought I could do in my life. Like I said before, I have a love-hate relationship with her. She's great. Like I'm I'm very much an introvert. People don't believe that. (laughs) I extrovert myself because I want to help other people. I extrovert, I extroverted myself when I was still in business, when I was working before I retired for money. You know, <laughs> and so I have a respect for her, mm. but also she's the bane of my existence sometimes. That's why she's a she. <laughs> no kidding. Oh my God. So, so you suggest that people write a financial forgiveness mantra. What's yours? <laughs> Mine uh, that I shared in the book, I'm not going to say because I cursed a little bit, <laughs> but I'll, it's akin to, for me, it's like I forgive myself for the financial mistakes that I've made. Mm -hmm. I release myself from the anxiety and shame because I'm human and that's okay. And we make money every day. 
I'll make some more. I can fix it. I'm not going to allow this to define me. And, you know, I think I tell my students and anyone who's read my book, you've got to you've got to come up with that because a lot of the anxiety we have around our finances is from ourselves, you know, just maligning like I'm a horrible person because I didn't cook tonight and I went and got takeout. I'm an awful person because I can't afford to allow my kids to go on holiday this year. No, you're not. You know, no, you're not. You, you, you've got to let go of that constant blaming of yourself, because if we stay in a position of regret, if we stay in a position of I suck, you, you'll, you'll never be able to propel yourself to do better. Okay. I want to, I want to just, as we wrap up here, give the audience like three steps to get started. Say a listener is at a point where they're ready to forgive themselves on their mistakes with money and try to learn to implement financial mindfulness, both in blaming themselves, but also in, in making smart decisions. What is the first step? The first step is what I call what had happened was. Mm. And you have to sit and think about what has caused you to be in the position that you're in right now. And you need to state it verbally to yourself and to anyone in your pockets in your family. You know, I'm in this position. Hi, I'm Buffy. I married a doctor and I was doing well financially. And now we have double income, no kids. And so um, I'm going to ball. I'm going to, I'm going to buy this. I'm going to buy that. I'm going to do all this stuff. And now I see that we don't have the savings that we should have. And that's causing me anxiety and crippling depression. And so I'm not doing that anymore. And so that means I can't loan you money anymore. And you make that declaration. Yeah, it's akin to the Alcoholics Anonymous. Hi, I'm Buffy and I'm an alcoholic kind of mm-hmm. thing. It's important to first do that. Then forgive yourself. Mm-hmm. Then say, yeah, I did all these things and it sucks, but I'm making a change. And though I know that I may falter on this new journey of financial freedom, I know that I am trying to make a better life for myself and my family. So I forgive myself. I'm not going to constantly allow not paying my student loans and, and, and having horrific credit now to define who I am as a person. And then you put forth a plan. And the plan isn't just a budget. The, a budget is a tool. People think budget is a bad word. They think that it's a curse word. They think that a budget is totally restrictive. And I'm here to say it's not. A budget is like a prenuptial agreement. People think prenups are bad. They're not. Prenups are great because prenups say what you maybe can't have, but it also says what you can and what you can get. <laughs> For some that. people, some people, prenup day is great. Because <laughs> if I stick this out in five years, I can get X, Y, and Z. It's the same with the budget. You know, it says, yeah, maybe, maybe I can't, I can't eat out you know, three times a week. Maybe, maybe I can't shop every time there's a sale. Maybe I can't go on holiday this year. Mm-hmm. But what I can do is if I stick to this tool of a budget, I can buy that house. Mm-hmm. I can send my kids to this private school that I really want them to go to. I can not have to continue selling my time working a job that I hate and retire earlier. Mm-hmm. And so... Think about the positive in a budget. Like you, you know, 
and use that to propel you to stick to that budget. And when you falter, and we all do, myself included, pick yourself up and try again and start over. And is that when that mantra comes into play, when you fall in? Yes. When you falter, you know what? I screwed up. I'm human. That's cool. It's all right. I'm going to sit in this moment, think about what I did and the, the triggers, and I'm going to work on eliminating those triggers. And a lot of time, those triggers are family members, friends who are like, oh, you can, you can eat out with us. You can come out for drinks. You can go on vacation or girl, they got this sale. You can get this <laughs> or, or your kids, you know, my, my, my kids are going to da, 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 that, that, you know, I'm, I wasn't blessed to be a mother biologically, but I have been to my nephews and man, that competition with soccer moms is anxiety. Ooh. Oh, Ooh, child. I can, I like just the, but you've got to block that out because what matters is, is your kid happy? Is your kid safe? Are they healthy? And, you know, you just have to sit in the moment and just think about those triggers and, and block them out and think about what is really meaningful to you, to you, not everybody else. Screw society that because honey, they ain't happy either. <laughs> okay. So my last question, I want to zoom out a little bit and, and ask your, ask for your thoughts. I mean, you know, this is a show about work and workplaces. We don't learn about personal finance in school, although that's changing a little bit. We don't really learn enough about it, I think, at work. Is there anything that employers or HR professionals, a lot of HR professionals listen to this show, that they can do to try to help employees be more mentally healthy about the money that they're given and earning at work after it, after it goes to their payroll? Oh, I love this question. Mm. So, so yeah, I, I think HR professionals, you know, if we allow, and this is definitely changing, and I'm very happy to see that this is changing. If we treat mental health like we treat someone having a heart attack, mm. if you aren't looked down upon because you need to take a couple of days off for anxiety, just like if you have the flu. If we support employees when, you know, they have these big deadlines and job duties that sometimes feels too difficult for them to fulfill, if they feel supported, if there's a community of, if there's a, if there's a place where you feel safe and you can come and you can speak without losing your job, if you feel supported by your coworkers, if there's some way to, to foster a community of people to come together in the workplace who can explain that we are all in the same boat and, and ways to, to make it, I think mm -hmm. that helps. I think that bringing in, you know, professional, financial professionals for talks mm -hmm. for employees is very important, you know, and allowing them the freedom to have access to those people in a in a one-on-one -on -one environment is very important. I think that employers should see that if we teach our employees what to do with their money and how to hang on to it and how to invest it, that they will be far more productive at work and mm -hmm. that employers should invest in things like cultivating these spaces where, you know, every month we have someone come in and talk about a different financial topic. You know, we have mindfulness rooms or meditation spots 
that you can go to as people now are returning back to the workplace because it's very important. And I just, I'd still, for the life, the life of me, I don't understand why mental health isn't the most important thing in the workplace. Our brain is what's doing these jobs. It's what's leading I don't us either. to do it. It's like, I, it should be the most important thing. The thing that employers invest in the most should be mental health. Well, but what I'm hearing you say also is that financial mental health is a part of mental health. You can't separate that. You cannot separate financial Financials and mental health, finance yeah. and mental health, money and mental health, they're intertwined and there's no way to change that because, you know, like I said before, it's never about a budget. It's about the why we do these things that we know wreak havoc on our finances. And mm-hmm. you've got to work on that why, you know, that Susie wants a new apple and this apple and she only has a dollar, but the apple costs two dollars. And she will beg, borrow, Venmo, steal, title pawn, payday loan to get that the money to buy that shiny, delicious red apple. When she's got apples likely at home, they may not be as shiny. Why is Susie doing that? Right. That is right. that's that's the 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 key to financial literacy. That's the key to getting your yourself on a plane where your finances don't run you and your money. Uh, works for you is the why. When you deal with why she wants that, why she would go for broke to get it, the world is your oyster, honey. Mm. Thank you, Buffy. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. This is fun. That's it for today's show. The Anxious Achiever is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to all our guests for sharing their stories with us. And thank you to our advertisers for supporting. If you want to share your story about mental health and work, send me a message on LinkedIn. I'll always respond. If you love the show, tell your friends, subscribe or follow us and leave a review. From LinkedIn Presents, this is Maura Aaron's Mealy.